Hey folks, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, I am actually uh, here in Geneva, uh, and this is uh, Seneca Lake. Uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful day. Uh, my wife and I, for uh, the Labor Day weekend, came out here to do some uh, wine tasting. And we had a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And so before we head home, uh, I'm gonna record this, uh, uh, this Bible study today uh, on Matthew chapter five. So today we are starting the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is the um, longest single dissertation in the Bible. It is the most well-known sermon, I would argue, across the globe. Um, but it was given on the hillside outside Capernaum. And last week I showed you guys that uh, Capernaum uh, is right on the Sea of Galilee. It's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And an interesting fact, uh, the Sea of Galilee is, let's see, I got it right here. The Sea of Galilee um, is 64 uh, square miles, uh, whereas uh, Seneca Lake, which is what we're on here, is 66 square miles. So it's roughly about the same size um, between the two. Uh, the, a, a strong difference between the two is that Seneca Lake here is 37 miles long. It's second of the largest of the Finger Lakes, whereas the Sea of Galilee is... Uh, it's actually only 13 miles long. It's more of an oval. Um, but, so let's talk a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it was given, as I just mentioned, on a hillside overlooking Capernaum. Uh, it's not necessarily on a mountain. Uh, when you look at the geography of the area just outside of Capernaum where he, where he was, uh, there's uh, hillsides that are there. Uh, and he went up onto one of those hillsides. His audience uh, was believers. Um, specifically, you have the 12 disciples, um, but this isn't a, a message that's given for the, the Jews or the Gentiles. It's specifically designed for those who believe uh, in God and uh, are part of His church, of Christ's church. Um, the message and the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is he is going to take the uh, Old Testament books of law, the Levitical priesthood and the Torah, the law, uh, which was given down to Moses in Exodus, and he's going to um, raise the bar on that uh, as you go throughout it. Uh, and specifically next week, uh, we're gonna see where um, Jesus is going to say, you have heard this, but I tell you this. In fact, I'm going to open it up and take a look at this and show you. So we're opening up Matthew, um, and right now we're starting on Matthew 1, but I want to skip ahead just a little bit. On Matthew 21, you see, uh, you have heard it was said, but in 22, uh, it says, but I tell you. And then again, you have in 27, you have heard it said, in 28, but I tell you verse 31, it has been said, 32, but I tell you, and 33, you have heard, 34, but I tell you, uh, 38, you have heard, but I tell you, and 43, you have heard, 44, but I tell you. Jesus in uh, Matthew 5 is going to raise the bar on, uh, on everything. He's going to raise the bar on, on what the Jews of the day thought righteousness was. Um, it's powerful stuff. It's very powerful stuff. And we are starting in the Beatitudes, which is really exciting. That's right at the beginning of Matthew, and that's what we're going to go through. Before we get into that, 
Uh, why don't you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for uh, Jesus, for the sermon that he gives. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you are here now and that you speak through me and that uh, you open up our hearts and you teach us something about your character. We praise you, Lord, and we love you. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Beatitudes. We're going to read now Matthew 5, 1 through 16. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So, in looking at this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down each of these um, and talk about what they mean. Okay? So follow along. The first one that we have is uh, the poor in spirit. But let's talk, before I go into those each individually, I forgot. I need to explain what the blessed part is. Blessed means uh, quite a few different things, but in the context here, we're going to see it as happy or joyful is a good way to look at it. Happy or joyful which this first one is uh, a conundrum because it says happy or joyful are the pure in spirit. Excuse me, are the poor in spirit. Happy or joyful are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means to be humble. And and what does that humbleness mean? It it means to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy, to acknowledge that, that you can't do it on your own. Uh, and what I want to look at specifically is Luke 18.10. So why don't you open uh, up, we're going to flip over to Luke 18.10. So we're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're going to Luke 18.10. Luke 18.10. There are so many noises behind me. Uh, there is a train that is getting ready to go. Um, that's right behind me. There's a busy road, which you can hear the, the trucks go by. And then right behind me here that I haven't shown is actually a bike path that's here. So occasionally you will uh, hear people go by. Uh, and I'm trying to not let it distract me, but it's, it's difficult not to. So I am reading 1810, uh, Luke 1810. Yep. So. This is a good example of what it means to be poor in spirit. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. Now I'm going to stop right here. Uh, in the King James it says a publican and that, that doesn't mean a political party. It's not a Republican or a Democrat. It simply means a sinner. So uh, the 
NIV, which is this version that I'm reading from, takes and calls this individual a tax collector. The important thing to note is that, that they're just a sinful person. They're just a sinful, lowly person. So let's, let's take it from the beginning on uh, uh, Luke 18.10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, this sinful man here. I am better than them. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I own. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now what does justified mean? An easy way to remember that for you note takers, justified means just as if you hadn't sinned. Justified, just as if you hadn't sinned. So I tell you this man, the sinner, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. <clears throat> if you're full of yourself, there's no room for God. I mentioned this uh, last week that pride I see as um, the number one sin. And if you are full of yourself, you have no room for God to fill you up. So this first one that we're looking at is to, to be poor in spirit means that, um, that you acknowledge simply that you cannot do it on your own. You acknowledge that you are bankrupt on your own and that you need God. Okay, now we legit have a train going by. We'll see if he blows his horn in a second. Okay, so uh, we're gonna continue on to the next one. Happy or joyful are those who mourn. So let's look at this one. Happy or joyful are those who mourn. The New Oxford Dictionary defines mourn as to feel um, or show deep sorrow or regret. But for what? Modern day, when I read this, uh, my immediate response is to um, show sorrow for losing something, um, for losing someone. When someone dies, we mourn. But that's not what what uh, Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about that we need to be mournful of our sinful condition. We need to mourn for our sin. Uh, we must be humble enough to admit um, that we can't do it on our own and we must mourn our sin. Uh, when you confess your sins to God, you mourn and show how deep your sorrow is. You will be comforted. A few Bible verses that I want to mention. Uh, if you're note takers, you can write these down. You have Proverbs 28:13. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Isaiah 66:2. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble with a contrite spirit and who tremble at my word. A third verse that supports this is 2 Corinthians 7.10. 
godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, that sorrow of the things of this world, brings death. When we agree with God about how bad our sin is, and we repent of it and seek his power to walk away from it, then Jesus promises to comfort us. And that's the whole point of this one, is, is that when you, this, this goes right on to the, the, the previous one, and this is going to continue. They're going to continue to build upon each other. It's all uh, the sim- similar messages that when we were agreed on how bad our situation is and how sinful we are, then God fills us up. This third one is the meek. Oxford's uh, definition, uh, or the worldly definition as I'm going to call it, of meek is to be quiet, gentle, and easily imposed on. That's the worldly definition, is to be easily imposed on. Happy or joyful are the meek. Now, God's definition is not Uh, easily imposed on. Uh, God's definition, and I really like this, Uh, I heard another pastor say this, strength under control is meekness. Having power to do something, but, but choosing not to or refraining for the benefit of someone else, that's meekness. So, uh, as an example of meekness, Actually, let, let, let's read Matthew 11 before we go to that example. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. So we're going to be here shortly. Um, it's just a little bit further ahead of us in our study. But why don't you open there to Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from it. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus talking. And the King James Version, rather than saying, I am gentle and humble in heart, it says, for I am meek and lowly. Jesus describes himself as meek. But I want to give you an example of, uh, that, that paints this picture very, very well. And this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the night in which Jesus is um, uh, taken captive by the, um, by the soldiers, and the next day uh, he is going to be um, beaten and, and crucified. But it's late at night, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and this whole uh, a, a group of soldiers come to uh, arrest him. So they come, and they say, uh, well, Jesus uh, approaches this group of soldiers and says, Who is it you're looking for? And they say, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he responds, I am he. I am. What Jesus does here, he says, I am. Where else do we see uh, this statement of I am? Well, it's in Exodus when God is talking to Moses. He declares that he is the great I am. Moses asks God, who shall I tell the Egyptians has sent me? You're sending me off to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Who should I say sent me? And his response is, God says, I am. Tell them that the great I am sent you. 
I am that I am. It's an amazing statement of God. I am. I am at the beginning. I am at the end. I am through it all. I am everything. I am before. I am after. I am in everything. I am. It's the name of God. So when Jesus says this to the soldiers, they all fall over. I, I would love to be there. I would love to see what that scene was like because I believe in that moment, Jesus is claiming who he is. He's saying, I am God. I am the great I am. He's saying to these lowly meek, not meek, excuse me, wrong term. He's saying to these lowly soldiers that he is God. And I believe he lets go in, in, in saying this, he, he potentially shows them just a, a snippet of who he is and they all fall over. But this is where his meekness comes in. He is God, he has the power, but he chooses to go with them. He chooses to go to the cross. Make no mistake about it, Jesus intentionally knew what he was doing and he willingly went with them for us, for you and for me. He willingly went to the cross for us. It's a very important note. So I want to make sure I'm following my notes here. Okay, so now we're going on to uh, our next point here, which is um, happy or joyful are those who search for righteousness. So here's this question of, well, what, what's righteousness? Um, and I want to look at it. Um, first, the New Oxford Dictionary um, calls righteousness morally right, uh, virtuous, excellent. So God's calling us to have a thirst for righteousness. He says that you will be happy or joyful if you search for righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6, for you note takers, Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Let's continue on and look at Romans. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually has quite a bit of things to say about righteousness. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Later on in Romans 3.10, actually it's earlier in Romans 3.10, There is no one righteous, no, not one. Okay, so uh, here's a question. If, if righteousness is something that we're supposed to be seeking after, and righteousness is described as uh, being virtuous, excellent, um, how do we do that? It's impossible. I mean, if what's said here is accurate, if what is said in Isaiah as well as what's said uh, by the Apostle Paul in Romans, it's impossible. Our righteousness, no matter how we try, is just filthy rags and, and, and we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So how? And how is it possible? Is Christ is telling us to do the impossible here. It's what's called imputed righteousness. The Bible talks about a thing called imputed righteousness. And what is imputed righteousness? Imputed righteousness is being declared righteous because of Jesus. When you take on and become a Christian, when you empty yourself of yourself and you allow the Holy Spirit to, to dwell in you and you take on the persona of Christ and you let Christ live through you, you then are granted imputed righteousness, meaning that this is impossible if it wasn't for God. Once you open up uh, to Romans 3.21, we're going into Romans 3.21. 
So, uh, let's see, Romans, you have Acts, you have the Gospels, then you've got Acts, and then right after that you've got Romans, and we're going to Romans 3, 21. So follow along with me, Romans 3, 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified. Remember I mentioned justified before, just as if you hadn't sinned. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Through Christ, we are given righteousness. It's phenomenal. Through Christ, we are given righteousness. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is a right relationship with God. Through imputed righteousness, the Christ follower is given perfection because you put on Christ. It's only through Jesus. Through Jesus, we have perfection imputed upon us. So this next one that we're going to talk about is uh, mercy, merciful. Uh, Blessed or happy are the merciful. Uh, forgiveness is what that is talking about. Uh, do you harbor resentment or bitterness because you were wronged? Um, have you ever said the words, I will never forgive that person? People are horrible to each other and horrible things have been done. There's no doubt there's people out there that, that are still holding on to bitterness or resentment because of something that um, happened in your past. And even though that thing might be horrible and horrific, the Bible does make it clear that if you want peace, the only way to achieve that, that, that peace is to let that go, is that you have to forgive. If you don't forgive, you'll never, you'll never be able to let it go and you'll never be able to find true peace. So if you want joy and happiness, you need to forgive. Uh, Matthew 6:14. We're going to be there in a couple weeks. Uh, says, "For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you yours." That's a scary statement. It's saying that if you hold resentment, if you don't forgive others, why should God forgive you? It's a scary statement. Romans 12:18. As far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. Vengeance is mine, in the King James, says the Lord. Let's make that clear. Forgiveness does not mean that you're necessarily going to forget what happened. And the Bible doesn't tell you to forget. It simply says that you are to forgive. It's God's responsibility to call down judgment and wrath and vengeance. That's God's, not yours. So leave the responsibility of whatever that person did. They will pay for their, the, 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 what they did. They will receive the repercussions for whatever act they did. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to forgive. That's what Jesus is saying here. Leave it to God and move on, let it go.
The next beatitude that we're looking at is being pure in heart. Happy or joyful are the pure in heart. Society says that we're supposed to follow our hearts, right? Follow your heart, just follow your heart. I'm really following my heart in this. But Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. So the Bible says that the heart is deceitful and beyond cure, but society says that we're supposed to follow our heart. So how can we be pure in heart? Being pure in heart involves having a singleness of heart toward God. A pure heart has no hypocrisy, no guile, no hidden motives. The pure heart is marked by transparency and an uncompromising desire to please God in all things. It is more than an external purity of behavior. It is an internal purity of the soul. How? How can you do this? How can you have a pure heart when the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful above all things? How? Well, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the only way that you can do this. I hope you're seeing the trend here, is that each of these attitudes that we are called to have is only possible through Jesus. It's not possible on your own. So uh, Psalm 51.10, for you note takers, Psalm 51.10 supports this. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The only way is to give our lives, our hearts, over to Jesus to empty ourselves out and allow Him to fill us up. And through that, then we'll have a pure heart. Okay, the next beatitude we're going to look at is happy or joyful are the peacemakers. So what is a peacemaker? Well, I'll tell you what a peacemaker is not, and that is a gossip. Gossip is one of those things that it's called sin in the Bible, but most people, it's just gossip, it doesn't matter. In fact, gossip does feel good. What do I mean by that? It means that, let's say that you go to see a friend and you haven't seen them in a long time and you say, hey, did you hear about this? And all of a sudden they're interested in what you wanna say. And you have this whole bonding experience over something that happened to someone else that you know. That's gossip. That is not being a peacemaker. That's the opposite of it. And gossip is one of those sins that is so easy to do, but so harmful. So be careful. When you enter the room, what do people think? Do they see you as, oh no, here comes so-and-so. Oh, what are they gonna talk about? Who are they gonna slander now? Or are you a peacemaker? Do you solve problems? Do you help calm things down? Truly lasting peace. You gotta look at being a peacemaker, a maker of peace. Truly lasting peace, shalom is the Hebrew word for it, can only come through Jesus. Are you getting the trend here? It can only come through Jesus. Romans 5.1, true lasting peace can only come through Jesus. Philippians 4, six through seven, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace is only attainable through Christ. So in order to be a peacemaker, you must humble yourself and put on Christ and be a peacemaker. And in doing that, 
you will bring others to Christ. They will see that and they'll hunger for it as well. And when you introduce others to Christ, then you are truly being a peacemaker. This final beatitude, happy or, or joyful are those who are persecuted. Now I'm putting in here righteously persecuted. I'm going to lump together verses 10 with 11 and 12 because it's all dealing with the same thing. And in fact, let's, let's open that up. So Romans 5, excuse me, Matthew 5. Uh, I have a place marker. Yeah, my place marker is there. I'll use that. So Romans 5, 10. Let's just refresh this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute, persecute you falsely, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I wonder, have you really felt persecution? Have you experienced it? For me personally, I haven't. I don't think that I have. Uh, ha, I, I don't think I've experienced it, not in the way the Bible talks about it. Will I? Likely. Likely. And the reason being is, is because it's a promise. And I'll get into that. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So do we even today know what persecution is? I would argue that we do feel some persecution, but when someone gets in an argument with you on Facebook and maybe defriends you, is that real persecution? I don't think so. Is it persecution? Could it qualify under that? Maybe, maybe. But there are situations, there are people in the world today that are truly being persecuted, where death is a threat to following Jesus. Look at the apostles, look at, at, at the disciples and, and what they went through. This is true persecution. Peter, the apostle Peter, he was crucified upside down. The apostle Paul, he was beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Thomas, he was killed by the spear. Philip, he was killed in northern Africa. Matthew, some say he wasn't martyred. Others say that he was. Some say he was stabbed to death. James, he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Matthias was burned alive. Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot were both martyred. John, John actually technically was not martyred though they tried. They actually tried boiling him in oil, but he survived because of Jesus. He was the only one of the twelve that wasn't martyred, but they tried. They tried. Luke 6.22, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as even because of the Son of Man, as evil. Excuse me, let me read that again. Luke 6.22, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. The Bible makes it clear that if you do all the things that are mentioned 
previously, you will be persecuted. You will experience it. But the Bible makes it clear that it's a good thing because your reward is great in heaven. So as we wrap up and conclude this half of Matthew, we need to look at what God calls us to be. What does Jesus call us to be in the remainder here? We are called to be salt and light. What does that mean? Let's refresh on this real quick. So let's read, as we're, we're wrapping up here, let's read Matthew 13, Matthew 5, 13. So follow along with me as we wrap up. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, as I wrap up here, Jesus has raised the bar and he says that we are to be salt and light. Now salt, let's talk about that for a second. What does it mean to be salty? That means to be flavor. Salt is an herb. It's used to add spice and flavor to your food, right? But if you put too much in, it tastes horrible. And a perfect example of this is that when I was a kid, I wanted to surprise my mom by making sugar cookies. They were my favorite cookie and they're very easy to make. So I decided to make sugar cookies. It was my first time actually making them on my own. And so I followed the recipe. But what I had mistakenly done is I had substituted the amount of sugar for salt and salt for sugar. So I put a pinch of sugar into these sugar cookies and cups of salt. The cookies were horrible. They looked perfect. They baked perfectly. But when you bit into it, it was horrible. It was way too powerful. Oh, still to this day, I can't eat sugar cookies. Because when I look at a sugar cookie, my mouth salivates at the memory of that memory when I was like six or seven years old of making these salty sugar cookies. In the same way, you are to reflect Christ. You are to be flavor and spice. But you're not supposed to overdo it. In the same way, when, when we're called to be light, you are called to be a light to the world, but you're not supposed to be blinding. You're not supposed to uh, go out into the street, grab your Bible and smack people over the head and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's not being a light to the world. Being a light to the world means that you put on Christ and in everything you do, you reflect Christ back on others, but you don't do it in a audacious or selfish way or a righteous way. You do it in a way that reflects Christ. What I've done here is I've taken all the things that are the opposites of the Beatitudes, the worldly perspective, and I've kind of made this little, uh, almost like a commencement speech, a call out. Um, of how society says you should be. And the amazing thing is, is that as I read this, you're gonna see, um, it's, it's actually quite a motivational speech that you could see given at a commencement address, um, a college graduation, you could hear this. 
You are who you are. So if it feels good, do it. And don't apologize. It's how you were made. Stand tall, be proud. Remember to nurture and defend your self-esteem. Build yourself up. Build yourself up. No one else will. You are not perfect. No one is perfect. So don't try to be and don't worry about it. But when you do something that is great, boast about it. We all deserve awards. Everyone deserves a medal. Make sure to point out all the good things that you have done. Post it to Facebook. Build up that self-esteem. It will give you motivation. Build that self-esteem. Build yourself up. Chase down every dream of your heart. If you want it, take it. And don't let anyone tell you that you can't. It's the passion of your heart. And don't deny your heart what it wants. If someone wrongs you, take them to court. If anyone hinders you, it's always someone else's fault. Remember that. Be a victim. If you spill your coffee and burn yourself, sue McDonald's. If you get in a car accident and you're able to, sue the car manufacturer. They have so much money and you need it. So if someone wrongs you, sue them. Take them to court. But remember, show others that you are a good person. Show the world that your good deeds far outweigh your bad. You're a good person. Genuinely speaking, you are good. Remember, all roads, if you're genuinely good, lead to heaven. So embrace all faiths and don't disrespect any faith by standing firm on one faith versus another. They all have merit. They're all good. Don't be disrespectful. Be open-minded. Above all, be true to yourself and follow your heart. Scary, right? I mean, as I wrote this, all I was doing was I, I summarized the Beatitudes of what we're called to be and what we're called not to be. And then I just removed what we're called to be and just made that speech based on what we're called not to be. That right there is how society sees the world. Okay, so now let me give you the opposite. This is the summary, in my summary, of what Christ calls us to be in the Beatitudes. Be humble. If you do a great deed, God knows and he sees it. Don't showboat. Don't boast. Acknowledge your sin. You are not perfect. He is. If you empty yourself of self, you will leave room for God to come into your life and change you from the inside out. He will impute his righteousness on you. When he does, be meek. You have so much strength through him who gives it to you. But be humble and be kind. Control the power that you have. Through Christ, be a light for others. Don't be a blinding light. Be salt. But don't be so salty that you destroy whatever you're trying to add flavor to. Forgive everyone who wrongs you. Build them up and show them the love you have been shown in Christ. If you do these things, 
The Bible verses we've just mentioned, the Beatitudes, promise the following. You will find peace. You will be comforted. You will be filled. You will be called a child of God. And you will be graciously given a place in the kingdom of heaven. We must be set apart. That's what Jesus is saying, is that you must have a lifestyle that is set apart. You must stand apart from others. But make no mistake, the world will not, this doesn't make sense to them. So I've got a few more points to make, a few Bible verses as we finally wrap up. Why don't you open with me to our last Bible verse, and that's Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Let me read that again. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Other verses, we're almost done. Other verses, Matthew 20, we'll be there eventually. Matthew 20, 26. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave. 1 John 3, 1. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. The world will not understand this perspective. As I said earlier, that speech that I gave about pursuing what's in your heart, that's a worldly perspective. And, and to summarize here, what Jesus is saying in, in the Beatitudes, we're to, to empty ourselves of self and put him on. He's raising the bar, and he's going to continue to do that as we continue into the, uh, next week, we're going to get the rest of chapter 5. And he is going to take the Old Testament law, the Levitical priesthood, and he's going to raise the bar on that and it's impossible. That's the conclusion that, that is going to come from this, is that apart from God, it's impossible. So stick with it. Thank you so much. And tune in next week as we continue on with the rest of Matthew 5. Now I want you to bow your heads as we close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your book. Thank you for this sermon. I pray that you continue to work in our hearts. Show us who you are. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week.